Hey guys, it's Sean O'Connell, the co-host of Real Blend, here with a new bonus episode, this time with uh, some more Across the Spider-Verse coverage, because as you can tell, we are huge fans of that movie and everybody who's been associated with it, especially the creative team. Uh, this one is composer Daniel Pemberton, who worked on the music not just for uh, this new film, but also back with uh, Into the Spider-Verse and continues a lot of that sort of sound palette from the original movie into the sequel. Uh, what's cool about how this got set up, and you'll hear on Friday, we're going to have the directors from Spider-Verse. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse on our main show. Uh, and while talking to them, they literally said to us like, hey, you guys are doing yourself a disservice if you don't also speak to Daniel Pemberton, because so much of what he contributes uh, to the movie and to the soundscape is really integral to creating the character and creating the worlds. And so immediately, you know, Sony was like, hey, do you really want to speak to Daniel? And of course, we were huge fans of his work uh, prior to the Spider-Verse movies and everything he's done in it. So we were very lucky to get him on um, for this exclusive conversation. As you will see, we talk a lot about his work that he did in Spider-Verse, but then uh, Kevin gets into a lot of stuff that he did with Danny Boyle and Steve Jobs, uh, and he's had experience working with some great, great directors, including Sir Ridley Scott, and he talks about his process with different filmmakers, but we go pretty heavy into the work that he did for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. So to continue our coverage for this fantastic movie, here is a bonus episode of Real Blend with composer Daniel Pemberton. <laughs> The reason why um, we fought to have you on is because when we were speaking to the directors, Kemp actually said to us, he was like, you guys are doing yourself a disservice uh, if you don't also speak to Daniel because of his contributions uh, to this thank film you, thank, and to the tone of it. You, and, <laughs> and that came up after I asked about the, the Gwen's drumming scene specifically. Okay. Because I felt that that um sequence set a tone you know for the movie and and almost like a backbeat to the film and they said that they considered that sequence really integral uh to the driving sort of rhythm of the movie as well too and we're saying that that's a sequence that they were tinkering with as you say almost up until the very last minute so i wanted to hear it from your side yeah. of the equation they, they were tinkering with it 10 yeah. days ago because i got a text <laughs> i'm out i'm back in london i get text going oh, could you just take a bit of the distortion off the drums for this bit? I'm like, what? I thought the film was done. What's going on? <laughs> um, uh, so, um, yeah, like the Gwen sequence at the beginning, yeah, really important. And taking Gwen's, like what's, like I love about Gwen as a character is the, the drumming element of, you know, you've got this, these two elements to her in, ter in terms of her theme. She has this very, like, graceful, balletic sort of, um theme uh and her sound is sort of like sort of poppy rocky based on her background being in the band but mm. also it's just really fun being able to really really introduce the drums into this this new version you know mm. in the first film the first film was very centered around miles mm. and i think what's great about cross is we have such a wider landscape of environments and people to play with and so I love the fact that we've really been able to bring drumming in Like, I don't, have you seen the whole film? The whole film, yes. Yeah. So the very end, I mean, I haven't seen the final mix at the very end. So I don't actually know what they've done yet, but I've been, I've been having to redo the album, like just do the edits. And every time the very last cue comes along, I am air drumming. And I'm like, this is great. I'm air drumming along to the music. And if you're air drumming or air guitar playing or air scratching, I'm very happy. So hopefully there'll be some other people air drumming to the soundtrack. That's and awesome. the drum and the drums that we're hearing in that opener, that's you. That, that's you playing the drums, right? Well, it's not me playing the drums because they're in time. 
If it was me playing the drums, <laughs> if it was me playing the drums, that really would be a very experimental uh, approach to a soundtrack. <laughs> uh, no, that's that is a great drummer called Mike Smith who um, has played on a lot of my like lot of my scores, and he's just a, a phenomenal drummer. And mm. uh, it was really, it was just great, you know, like that opening sequence. I'm working really closely with directors, editor, backwards and forwards. Like, okay, here's, you know, like it's, it's a tricky thing because it's like a chicken and egg thing. It's like, right, do I write the music first and you animate to that? Or do you animate and I try and make everything fit? And so I think another thing about this film is there is so much um, communication mm. between everyone. We're all working together. To, to work out how we can push every sequence forward and make it feel each sequence special and how to make it feel unique. Like when we first meet Miles, for instance, in this one with uh, uh, like, my name is Miles Morales, where he sort of fills you in where he's been and that whole sequence, you know, that is a really big record scratching sequence. Mm. And for that, you know, I, I asked the sound team, you know, send me all the sound effects in the sequence and we'll try and scratch them in. So, you know, in that sequence, we've got like the felt tip pen sounds, they're being scratched in. We've got the car crash noises. We've got the punches. We've even got the goose. I don't know if you noticed the goose. We record scratched the goose, which is like my creative high point in film music. What? Um, we took the sound. We, so we're doing this track. And so the Miles track is like, it's all these different sounds of Miles's life, uh, you know, where he is now based on the theme, like Miles's theme from the first film, remixed with a bit of a Puerto Rican kind of spin on it. And and then I wanted to use it as a way to like, like give him a sort of scratch showcase. And so all these different things are flashing up. We're getting him drawing. Okay, great, he's drawing. Let's use the sound of felt tip pens. So we've got, mm. we've got, there's, he's saving someone from a car crash. Right, let's get a car crash noise. <laughs> and we're putting all these things in, right? And there's this bit at the end of that sequence where he catches up with a goose. I don't know if you remember that. There's a bit where yeah, him and yeah. him and Spot, there's a goose, okay? Yeah. So I'm, I'm, we've kind of finished this track, and then I'm in the studio, and I'm like, man, we didn't do anything for the goose. We need a goose. Get us a goose. So we get a goose sound, <laughs> and then we throw it over to Blakey, who's this amazing record scratcher, while we're in, in, in the session. I'm like, can you give me a goose scratch? So we get him the goose sounds. <laughs> And then we start scratching this goose sound. And I'm like, this is the best thing ever. I was so excited because it sounded so ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> but it was so funny and it made me laugh. And I thought, wow, if you can do a piece of film music that feels cool but makes you laugh, that's a win. And yeah. um, I think the goose is my proudest moment in the film. <laughs> like, God, that's amazing. You know, D Daniel, <laughs> I want to know one thing I find interesting about about film music, really, it comes down to a lot of films are heavy soundtrack films and a lot of films are heavy score films. And then sometimes you find movies that get a great mixture. Um, like I always found it interesting with Quentin Tarantino, like a lot of his movies that he made were so soundtrack heavy for so long. And then he brings in the master for the hateful eight. Uh, and he, and he, you know, and then he goes really score heavy with that. And what I found interesting about this film is that they really blended the two in a beautiful way. The soundtrack and the score are, you know, they, they work so well together, but your music has to somehow match the tone of the soundtrack as well. And I'm curious how involved you are in the soundtrack aspect of things and knowing what your score is going to lead into or come out of a soundtrack piece. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm like when I was working on this movie, my entire life was just working on this movie. It was like, uh, I, like you know, that was it. You end like everyone working on this film entered the Spider Verse themselves, and that is like no joke. That's like where we all live. I mean, and so I know every song that's coming in. You know, I'm hearing the early demos that Metro was doing, which were great. Um, so you'd kind of hear the sounds he was using. The sounds would often fit with things I was doing as well. Um, sometimes you'd be like, okay, that's a different, like, like that's different approach. Sometimes you'd be like, do I want to echo that in the score or do we let that have its own kind of rhythm there? Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of, there's just a lot of involvement. It's not the sort of film where you just turn up at the end and, and write the, the sort of soundtrack. You are kind of like intrinsically involved. And I think the hardest thing for me is you know, the music, you know, they have like hundreds of animators, but the music department is just me, really. We have a great music editor called Katie Greathouse and me, and that's it. Oh, my God. And, and you know, I don't have a big factory of people writing stuff. I'm I'm writing everything myself. So it's like you're, you're slate. It's like it's it was crazy, crazy intense work. I actually came over to L.A. at one point and was pretty much living in a very unglamorous office at Sony next to the edit suite where I would get up. I'd work there till about like midnight, go home, fall asleep, come back and do that every day. It was very intense. For how long? Uh, about a month. I was doing that bit. Oh my well, God. Then Unbelievable. That was, that was near the end. Then it's like, right, you have to go back and record it. <laughs> well, you talk about finding these unique sounds, uh, Daniel, there's one sound that's, that's so integral to both into uh, and across, and it's the sound of something glitching. Um, yeah. You know, once you hear it, you immediately know that it's from these movies. Can you talk about the origin of, of capturing that sound and coming up with it? Well, there's loads. I mean, glitching, there's a whole bunch of different things we've got. Like we've got, um, I designed like conceptually a bunch of sounds from the first one uh, and worked with these great, great guys called Slate and Ash, who, who some friends of mine who build, really interesting sound things uh if you're really into if i can get geeky they build great stuff for contact i highly please recommend do. it please do get um, geeky. that's that's the and show so, <laughs> so you know we, we talked about like uh how could we create glitches how could we create risers and we sort of like just spent a long time sort of trying to to work out what would make a good glitch um because it's it's the randomness. If you get something that's too constant, like eh, 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 it just doesn't sound very glitchy. So there's a kind of randomness of, and then also we, we did these risers where it'd be like, if you just had a riser that goes, ooh, it's all right. But if you have four different sounds all going, ooh, at slightly different speeds and on different ramps, it creates a, uh, a wider sound and uh, something that's like more unstable and instability in this film is really interesting and being able to control instability through sound is a very big part of making these things work so we mm. built all these crazy little toys not toys instruments for the first one which we used a lot in the second one and there's a lot of sounds from the first one that i've brought into the second one as well as like a whole new palette but, you know, the, the sound that the film opens with, the first one is also the sound the second one opens with. But that quickly twists. And then later, when Miles 
finds out about something, let's say, uh, that sound becomes quite a key part of that. Mm. And that sound is a kind of multiverse sound. Okay. Now, uh, most people will probably not notice that at all. But for me, it's like the more you can create these tiny connections where certain sounds mean it's certain subconscious things. to the audience. It becomes subconscious. Yeah. yeah. So, so we have like loads of like stuff from the first film. So we have themes which were established in the first film, things like the collider. Uh, yeah, there's a collider theme in the first film. If there was a collider in the second film, let's say, I don't know if there is, I'm just saying if there was, <laughs> we can revisit those concepts and bring them back in. And that might only be for a small amount of time. Uh, but there's all these devices like that. When, when 2099 talks about uh, canon events and the effects of elements of the multiverse, there is a chord progression. That chord rep progression represents this idea. Mm. That that is all through this film, and then you have Miles's destiny theme, which can drop on top of that, or you have the Spider-Man theme, which goes Spider-Man, because obviously a good film theme, you should be able to sing the name of uh, <laughs> the the hero on it, and <laughs> all these things can play back and forth. There's like a family theme from the first film when Miles is talking to his parents. That is now also in Gwen's world because Gwen is having a, a similar emotional connection with her dad. So that theme can work for her as well, because she's living a different reality, a, I mean, a, a different universe, but with the same emotional problems. Mm. And there is so much connection between these films and these universes and these worlds through the music that hopefully is, it is well, it's great when it's really obvious, but it's also great when it's subconscious. So you just feel this whole thing is connected and you don't even realize why. And if you want to get really nerdy, you can get really nerdy and start breaking it all down. But most people don't need to do that. They can just enjoy the movie. Mm. You know, Daniel, I, I've wanted to interview you for years. I, and I remember the moment that I knew I wanted to interview you. I was sitting across from Danny Boyle uh, talking about Steve Jobs. And I remember uh, thinking about like what he was talking about in terms of technology and the way he was going to shoot the different years. And I think yeah. it was 16 millimeter in the in the early years and 35 millimeter film and then digital uh, as the technology progresses. And he mentioned that, that that's the way the score was done as well in terms of building up the technology over the years. And the whole point of our show was that we've we created this show to educate our audience about the filmmaking process and all the details yeah. that you're talking about right now in terms of Spider-Verse just shows the lengths that you as an artist go to to create an immersive experience for an audience, even if we're not fully understanding every aspect of everything that goes into it, we're feeling it. Um, and so I was wondering if you could at all just take me back to that process on that and the idea of how you decided to progress the technology as the film yeah. went on well with with steve jobs like uh aaron sorkin had written a script that was so clearly these three three acts you know the first act uh which was the launch of the macintosh second act the launch of the next computer third act uh the um ipod imac um and you know Danny was talking about this thing of shooting everything differently, staging it all differently. So we were like, "What? Let's we should approach the music in a similar way." So you know, the idea was the first, the first act for me was about 
the birth of technology and the optimism of technology. And I think I want to do an all electronic score that that embraced that idea. And, you know, around that time, which is 1984, um, the idea of the synthesizer was unbelievably exciting. It represented the future. It represented an optimism. And so I basically wrote that telling myself I couldn't write with any instrument that didn't exist before 1984. Wow. So I could only use synthesizers, pre-1984 synthesizers, which is lucky because there's lots of really good ones. <laughs> uh, it gets, I personally, synthesis gets a bit boring around that era because the FM synthesizers came out, which I'm not as much of a fan of, but I've kind of warmed to them a bit. Mm. Um, but the idea was I was going to write that so you could capture an essence of the um of that era and of that that sense of of you know technological utopia and and the this this story that 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 um how computers and technology would improve our lives then we get the second act where he's saying the next computer we were like okay this is this is steve jobs the showman and this is all set in an opera house. So I'm like, let's write an opera. Let's make it feel like an opera. So wow. that was like, okay, let's, let's completely change it. Let's go fully orchestral. Let's operatic vocals, operatic chorus. And so the idea was we'd write that all um, as if it was an opera. Actually, the funniest thing is one of those tracks has now been used in the Google commercial, which I think is, <laughs> which, which I think is a funny, uh, like, a, like, uh spin round <laughs> and then the third act uh was like the technology has got to the level where digital right do, yeah digital it's got to the level where it can do what you were told it could have done you know like in the 80s it's like actually now the sort of dream has been fulfilled so i was like okay i'm going to write that all in the computer that is going to be the digital score and so that wow. was written all in the computer on an imac um on a mac uh Obviously, I said conceptually, I wrote it on a Mac because I wanted it to sound really pure. But if it was a film about IBM, I'd have still written it on a Mac. <laughs> um, um, but um, again, it was, it, you know, and it's, so I like, like for me, f like film and film music and like for me, cinema is about surprise. And um, I think the most important thing when you go to see any film should be not knowing what's going to happen. Not like a, a, a like the best cinematic experiences you always have are ones where you have no idea what you're going to get. Yeah. And for me, a lot of cinema over the past decade or so has got a bit, there's, there's a, there's an element of it, which has become quite formulaic and you almost know what a film is going to look like, what it's going to sound like, what it's going to happen in it before you even sit into cinema. So I try and I, I sort of try and avoid, those films and I like films where it's like you have no idea what's going to happen you have no idea what it's going to sound like and so the way I always approach every score it's not like here is my factory here's my sound here's my team of people who make my sound fit on these films I try and approach every film completely differently and completely freshly because I think you're then totally in service of the film and what the film requires not what you know what what you can put onto the film it's like how do you help the film i think also mm. for the audience i i love going to cinema and i love sitting there not knowing what i'm going to hear what i'm going to experience mm. and that excitement 
is always what makes memorable experiences. If you think about all the times you've been in the cinema and something's really stuck with you, I bet you it's because it felt different or it felt new. Mm-hmm. Those times when you're, you're seeing something, you're like, oh, this is kind of cool, but I've sort of seen this before, you forget them. But the bits, when you hear something new or you see something new or you feel something new, that stays with you. And when you leave the cinema, you remember it. Decades later, you remember it. I can remember seeing films all through my life and moments that stick with you. And they often stick with you because they feel like something you haven't experienced, you're experiencing it for the first time. Um, so that's always very important for me of, of how I approach a film and how I, I want it to feel like, you know, nothing else is the plan. It doesn't always work, but that's, that's, that's the way for me to make kind of great cinema. This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. At Highland, we're all about celebrating little wins and little ways to innovate digital processes. There's no customer pain point too small for us to help with. Maybe that's why more than half of the Fortune 100 looks to Highland to connect their content and data, improve processes, and turn little efficiencies into big wins for their customers and clients. Highland, intelligent content solutions for innovators everywhere at highland.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Mm-hmm. And I appreciate that answer, by the way, because ever since Danny Boyle told me that, like I was sitting across from him in London, I flew to London for 11 yeah. hours just to just to cover that movie. And I remember him talking about shooting 16 mil, 35 mil and then digital. And then he told me about your score process. And I'm like, that is the coolest thing ever. And for years until talking to you today, I've always presented that to people before they watch the movie. I'm like, you have to okay. know how cool this is, about how Daniel and Danny did this. Um, so thank you for explaining that. I've always, I've always been wanted to ask you that question. So thank it's, you. it's cool. I mean, Steve Jobs is one of these projects. I mean, I love that film. And it's, it's kind of in, it's sort of interesting because it kind of it, it sort of got a, it basically did it get I got a bit of it kind of came out and then it got a bit of a kicking. Yeah. And it's really interesting how, you know, the way we 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 look at art often and and cinema is still through numbers and 
Is it successful? Has it made money? And weirdly, like for me, a successful project is something that touches someone and stays with them. And Steve Jobs is one of these films that has stayed with so many people. Yeah. And, you know, people Incredible. still talk about it all the time. And it might mm -hmm. not have been seen by the entire world, but the people who do see it, like it, it really connects with them. And, yeah. you know, it's a very special, special film to me. Also, brilliant, brilliant score. Also, a very intense filmmaking process. I yeah. love Danny. Uh, but he's such, again, these perfectionist directors, they just. <laughs> You know, you, you, it, 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 it takes over your entire life. Hmm, that's now, amazing. At the same time, before I get to my next question, is Ridley that way as well, too? Because you worked with Ridley and he seems very off the cuff, well, hands, kind of. Hands off. Well, Ridley's more like big picture kind of guy. So Ridley yeah. would be like, right, what do you want to do? And the thing I think is amazing about Ridley and why there are so many great scores for some of his films is he's like, okay, I trust you. Go do your thing. Okay. And. You know, he surrounds himself with great people. Like, he's like, if you ever see Ridley on set, it's insane. Like, he's <laughs> just like, this guy has been doing it his entire life. He's just like, right. He comes on set and he's like, okay, right. Move that there. That's in the wrong place. Put that over there. Put that there. Put some things on this. Someone get me some red chilies. We need a whole string of red chilies and I want them all down this table. I'm thinking, who the hell's going to get uh, like all these red chilies <laughs> on a Sunday in Italy at like 12 o'clock? I feel really bad for those people. Then he's like, right, camera one, you're going to come along here. Camera two, you're going to do this. You're going to camera left here. You're going to camera right here. You're going to look at this. Actor, you're going to come up here. You're going to walk along here. You're going to say your line here. When he does that, you're, you, yeah, you, you're going to come around here. I'm going to stop like this. You're going to take this camera and do that. And you're going to move here. Right, you got that. Let's go. I just remember going, I'm so pleased I'm not the cameraman on this. <laughs> um, and I think when it gets to the, you know, after, after you shot something, he's, he's, you know, more chilled. So it's like, you'll go write a load of stuff. You'll meet with him. You'll discuss it. And he can be really straightforward. He doesn't like stuff. You know, you, like any director, there'll be things where you think, oh, my God, this cue is going to be the biggest nightmare. And they're like, no, no, love it. And then there'll be some tiny bit and you spend ages on it. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I've done a bunch of things with Ridley. You know, I love working with him. You know, mm -hmm. he kind of in some ways gave me my first, you know, my real kind of Hollywood break. Yeah, counselor, took, right? It was, it was like yeah, a big yeah, one for I, you. Yeah. yeah. And he took a big, you know, risk. You know, I was kind of like, I'd only done one really, really, really done one film at that point. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, one of the things, you know, when I met him is he quizzed me. I didn't know I was going to do his film. He just wanted to meet me. And, you know, he talked about my background and my background is in, in British television. So I worked yeah. in British television on every show imaginable, great and not so great. <laughs> um, uh, and... But that gave me this great understanding of, of um, music, of, of writing, of production. You know, I would be doing documentaries where, you know, one week I'm doing music that's meant to sound like Elvis Presley. The next week I've got to do something that sounds like a string quartet. And so I basically kind of, I don't want to say I bluffed my way through, but yeah, basically I kind of bluffed my way through and said, I know how to do all this stuff. And I didn't. And I'd, and I'd learned very, very quickly. And because you're just doing it and making stuff all the time, you learn mm. so quickly. And so he was like, I, he was like, he explained to me, he did the same thing in advertising. He learned how to direct yeah. just by making advert after advert. Mm. And he's like, you've done your 10,000 hours. You know, I, he said, I did mine in, in advertising and that's what taught me to be a director. And so he said, and you've done yours in TV. And I was like, 
that is the coolest story. That's it. I can just go home. I've got a cool story about meeting Ridley Scott. <laughs> and then about two days later, I get a phone call at like 9 a.m. from the editor, Pietro. I'm like, oh, who's calling me at 9 a.m.? I do not like being called at 9 a.m. And <laughs> I'm still in bed. And he's like, uh, right, Ridley wants you to do the film. You've got to come in an hour. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. I'm like, okay, shit. Fuck. And then I put the phone down and I'm like, oh, that was really weird. And I'm like, I think my life might have just changed. And it, it did from that point onwards. And then I got changed and cycled into Soho very quickly. It's incredible. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask about the, the third film, um, because well, like you say, this one took five years and you guys immersed yourself in it. And the work shows like it's very clear that this is the creation of people who lived this for years. Yeah. And then I think about the fact that another one has to arrive oh. in March and I'm not trying to put oh, any kind okay. of pressure, but can you All explain, right. you must be working on them side by side. You had to have oh, been. Okay. Here's the, here's the deal with the third film. No one will talk about the third film for yeah. multiple reasons, but also because none of us want to talk about the third film. We are so <laughs> like everyone on this film is so exhausted from this movie yeah. because this has been one of the toughest, most intense experiences any of us have ever had like everyone across the board. When you watch that movie, you can see the effort that's gone into that film. Yeah. Every oh, yeah. frame, every sound, every line, everyone's exhausted. It's like, so none of it, we, there's a kind of informal pact. Do not talk about the third film. <laughs> ask me, ask me in a month. Sure. Yeah. I'll talk about it. But right now right. I ain't talking about it. Like asking um, a pregnant woman when she's going to have her next baby. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's based like that. Are oh, you just giving birth? I, I hear you want another one. Like, you're like, <laughs> you know, Daniel, uh, kind of going back to, uh, going back in time here. Uh, we were talking about the technology aspects of Steve jobs and obviously the different technology aspects you're using here and different sounds. I think next year is 30 years since your first album bedroom. Um, yeah, and done your research. Yeah. And, and what I found interesting about that was a multi-track cassette recording that you did. And I wanted to know, like, looking back on that version of yourself, that album that you made and like the biggest lessons you learned from it. Is there anything from that process you're still implementing in something like this? I mean, I know you're, you're you've obviously learned a lot and, and grown over the years and, 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 and found your way into film scores and doing more. But I just wonder, like, what that what that album meant to you and kind of what, what do you remember about that guy who made that that album? I, yeah, it's weird. I hadn't thought it was 30 years. Jesus. Next year, right? it's yeah, 30 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, you're right. 2024. Oh my God. Maybe I need to put out a 30 year anniversary for all the people <laughs> who don't want to hear that record. Dude, put it on vinyl, man. <laughs> yeah. I, w I yeah. would buy a vinyl anniversary. I mean, I've, I've been such a fan of your music for so long, but like that, I, I, I would love to just hear that. Okay. I mean, it's yeah. weird. Cause there's, there was a second album that never came out. That was massively influenced by Blade Runner that, that never came out. And I'm, wow. I'm like, I should dig down the, the, like the master for that somewhere. Your evangelist um, stage. Yeah. My, yeah. That, that album, um, I mean, obviously that album means a huge amount to me because it was the album, you know, it was, it was, you know, my first kind of work really that went out into the world, it, you know, that, that got me my first film, comp like TV composing job, which was a director called Paul Wilmshurst who, who heard the record and asked me to score a TV documentary for him. Hmm. I was still at school. Um, but you know, listen to it now is, you know, there's stuff on it. There's actually, you know, it's, it's, there's some stuff in it that's really good. I mean, it's, I think I learned so much making that record because it was a time when I had very little in terms of equipment and sounds. 
And that has stayed with me forever because I think there's this big myth that you need tons of equipment. You need the latest equipment, the top gear, you know, you need all the pro stuff. It's nonsense. It's like whatever you've got, work with that. And mm-hmm. it's like, sure, if you want to make a, 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 a thousand piece orchestra that sounds like Hans Zimmer, then you probably need all the stuff that he's got. But Hans Zimmer does that very well. So don't copy him. Do your own thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I had a Korg wave station uh, and I had a Boss DR660 drum machine and a <laughs> Fostex X28 tape player. <laughs> See, I can remember these so well. And that's all I had. I didn't have any sequences. I didn't even have a sampler. So I, everything was being played in by hand. I only had four tracks. Mm. And those limitations were really important. Like I, I basically learned to program the wave station incredibly well because it was all I had. Uh, to the extent I don't think I've ever been able to know any instrument as well as that since. And I think mm. one of the things that I I find today uh, a bit ups not upsetting, but you know, I I do so many different things in the project that I don't necessarily have a mast- mastery over one instrument. I have mm. like a good grounding in them. Mm. Um, but I think when I had that just that one keyboard, it taught me so much about programming, about effects. I had two effects. So I'm like, how do I make the sound better? Okay, I could fiddle around with the reverb tail. And I'd have to go in constantly and tweak. You know, I'd, I'd learn things like, oh, how do I make this delay, this, this echo sound more interesting, this reverb? Mm-hmm. I could put pre-delay on it. And so I, I was so immersed in sound at that time that it gave me really good fundamentals uh, that have stayed with me forever. And I think also the the thing of um you know like at that time like all i was the main concern of my life was tape hiss so if i bounced tracks too many times you get too much hiss so all i worried about was tape hiss when you're writing a track (laughs) um and you know now i've not thought about tape hiss for like i mean the fact i never have to think about tape hiss is just that is like the golden the golden future but (laughs) <laughs> I, I like there's there was a naivety but also a, like an intense level of passion in that record yeah which is where yeah that was it my life was just i loved just being in my room trying to fiddle around i remember there's one track on it it's called phosphine and it's like seven minutes long and i'd have to play the entire piece in live and if i messed up stop start again oh my and gosh. And I remember that day because it was a sunny day and my <laughs> friend Ben Speed was having a party around his house. And it was, and I was like, he had everyone's around Ben's house in the garden. And I'm like, shit, I've got to get this piece done. I've got to <laughs> record it again. And I get to the end, I'd screw it up. And you couldn't really punch in. It didn't really work well enough. And that is like, yeah. I, I just remember just being like in my bedroom, like the sun shining outside, shut the blinds a bit to try and not get too hot. And I think I haven't even really changed the way I work. I mean, I still technically kind of work in my bedroom. This is like, <laughs> I'm in my flat. You know, my bedroom is just over there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I probably haven't really progressed much as a human being uh, <laughs> since then. <laughs> it's like, wow. I, can't, I can't even do, like, I, I think there's a lot of people who have very fancy big studios. And I, I, for some reason, I've never really managed to do that. Like, I've kind of wanted to, but I'm again just that thing of being able to roll out of bed and be like okay let's make some music right. didn't you do counselor at, at abbey road 
Yeah, I mean, all these films are going... Later, yeah. (laughs) I record everything, you know, I'll record at Abbey Road. You know, Spider-Verse, we did at Abbey Road and Air, both two amazing studios in London. Um, But, you know, the the starting point is always here. Mm. And I think another thing I've really learned, which the counselor really taught me as well, was every idea is a... Every idea, you should judge it on its merit and not Mm. on the cost or the, the scale or the sort of importance of it like we we sort of live in a world where we look at an orchestra and we go that's proper music Mm. this person must be very uh uh intellectually astute to be a composer to work with an orchestra um and we look at let's say a rubber band and you're like "Eh, someone twanging a rubber band anyone can do that right right. they can and there's far more artistry involved in learning the violin and playing with an orchestra but from a sound point of view, both those things, the, in the right place, the rubber band could be more interesting than orchestra and could have more of an impact on the, mm. on the listener. And so I learned, like on the counselor, we had these noises that were kind of like these clicky noises done on a, on a guitar harmonic that I did here. And I realized that those are the things that really stuck with you in that film. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we had this big orchestra, Abbey Road, Expense, and, you know, I was seduced, you know, you, you get seduced by this thing being bigger and it feels more important. Sure. But actually, the right idea can come from anywhere. And one of the things Danny Boyle, I think, is amazing at is, you know, he doesn't care. It's like if it's a cool idea or it feels good and it feels mm-hmm. different, he goes for it. So it's like, you know, he could shoot a whole film on, let's say, IMAX cameras. But then it might be something he got a shot on his iPhone <laughs> that's held really badly because like the vibe is better he just shoved that in the film and yeah. i learned a lot from him i think on that as well which is just um you don't always have to go for slickness or expense to tell a sure. story and obviously mm-hmm. there are places where that is brilliant you know if i'm watching lawrence of arabia and like halfway through david lean's got a shot you know like a badly done uh, <laughs> portrait shot on an iPhone, yeah. I probably wouldn't be over the, Yeah, it would take you out of the film. Um, yeah. Likewise, if Morris Shah's score halfway through went into like a kind of weird lo-fi drum loop, <laughs> I mean, it might be interesting, but it, it would change the feel of the movie. Yeah. But done in the right way, that could be amazing. And I mm. think the 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 ability to look at the orchestra as as another instrument rather as rather than the instrument yeah is what is sort of what i try and do and uh, like I, the orchestra basically is one of the most amazing instruments you know that's ever been invented mm. um but i'm kind of there's lots of people who've written amazing amazing pieces for it far better than i could so yeah. i'm basically like i can't write the world's greatest orchestral piece but i can write the world's first orchestral piece with a rubber band in it (laughs) and therefore i would have written the best piece for orchestra rubber band actually won't even be that because i think uh penguin cafe orchestra have already done done that but you know what i mean it's like if i put enough different elements at least that way i've got something new and it might not you know it will be the best because it's the first uh daniel we'll get you out of here on this and we thank you so much Uh, we have so many questions for you man we can listen to you forever honestly but i would i want to get your opinion on this we've had this discussion on our show multiple times um there's no such thing as best what is your favorite superhero theme uh my favorite why and why i i'm trying to think like um 
I mean, I really like uh, Hans's work on Batman and Dark Knight, which yeah. I think was really, <laughs> really groundbreaking. Um, yeah, because wasn't it fascinating that like like the Joker's theme is just this D note that just gets dissonant and more dissonant? Like it's so simple, but so yeah. Effective. I mean, weirdly, I don't find that side. I don't find that side as as in. I mean, I, I definitely find that interesting. I think that scores. I think that score is a phenomenal score. Yeah. And um, I think I think there's definitely stories that like Hans is amazing at coming up with with good good stories that that become the myth of the score. But actually, if you look at that score from a musical point of view, it's got simplicity, it's got clarity, it's got these really amazing elements within it, which are quite like they're not simple, but there is uh, a clarity to them. And yeah. a strength to them, and a power which, I, uh, and I think it's 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 really I mean really well done. It's sort of weird because I've, I've I always feel it was slightly influenced by Elliot Goldenthal's work on Heat, which also is like a phenomenal score. Wow! And if you listen to Elliot's opening piece in Heat, you oh. can sort of see how that could have inspired and influenced the sound of Dark Knight. Oh yeah, because um, it's got similar ideas to do with glissandos, to do with some of the sonic um elements um and that's the thing that's interesting is like how art affects you know artists will affect each other um but i do think dark knight score really was a huge game changer and sometimes not for the best because there have been so many terrible rip-offs of it and you just sure it, 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 it sort of bores you like because so many people have ripped it off um to not the same level it you know it it becomes it becomes, um, you know, it sort of makes the original feel less fresh. Yeah. When I go back to it with, with fresh ears, I think that's brilliant. I think, uh, I mean, Superman, the John Williams is still one of the all time greats. Sure. I, I feel for whoever's got to, do, whoever's got to do a Superman movie every yeah, time. No, that like, oh, that one's mine. I mean, that one, that to me is one of the most memorable pieces of film score. I do ever. love Zimmer's Man of Steel score, though. I do love that Man of Steel I like score. that theme. The theme is great. Yeah. The rest of the score, I'm less excited about. Sure. It's like a sure. lot of percussion, but the main theme, that the is main, great. Yeah, that main yeah. piece. I think, yeah. I think Ludwig's work on Black Panther is superb. Oh, I, mem- oh I remember, I remember hearing that. I remember actually, I snuck into one of those sessions. He was recording at Abbey Road, and I, I sat at the back in the percussion session. Uh, I've actually been in quite a few superhero, which people don't know about. Like I was in the Avengers session, Alan Sylvester. He didn't know I was in there. Really? I just snuck in. I think I think it was a remote session. I got it on my phone somewhere, and I was just sitting in the back <laughs> in the percussion as they played the big. And I was like, "Oh my god, this sounds amazing, dude!" Um, man, that's one of my favorite scores ever. Sylvester's Avengers theme. Is so good. Well, the thing about the thing about that, right, is it's got a great theme, and I think what with what has been missing is theme payoffs. Mm. Where like we do this in 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 Spider Verse, you you make an audience want to hear a culmination of a theme. Yes, and and if you give them the theme all the time, they're going to be bored with it. But if mm. you tease them with a bit, and then you pay it off at the right moment, and you know how to pay it off, and you deliver, that is like some of the most satisfying moments in cinema. And you look at all these these big themes, like Superman. When the Superman theme kicks in, you're just like, yes, yeah. Um, Black Panther score, that main theme. When I saw that film, I was yeah. like, basically, as a composer, you, the greatest compliment I think you can have for someone else's work 
is 50% of you is really excited and 50% of you is really angry because you're like, <laughs> you're like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is everything yeah. I want to do. Like, this is what film music should sound like. And the other half, he's like, shit, this is so much better than anything I've done. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to think who else, which other ones I really, I really dig. I like Michael's Batman theme that came out recently as well oh yeah mm, my oh my god yes when, when you when like for us we like, i'm so excited for to see what nolan does with oppenheimer like with ludwig's score for that like do are you like is that are you more anticipating the score for that movie than the yeah. movie itself yeah there's certain films where you're like okay like like a new wes anderson film is just black gonna bring the goods yeah, can't yeah. wait to hear <laughs> every nolan film every nolan film i'm always just because I think the thing about Nolan is he really knows how to use music. It's and like a really leading character. He uses it as a character in his movies. Yeah. yeah, and so he understands like the power that music can bring to cinema, which I think still not enough people do. And yes. like, like by pushing it, you know, you're, the music gives you something abstract, which, which is like music's greatest power. I think is to say things that that image or words can't always do. Exactly. And so he pushes, you know, and he always, again, all his films have these beautifully self-contained worlds and the scores always feel as individual as the film. Interstellar, man. Oh my God. One of the greatest that is such score. a good, that's such a yes. great score. I mean, but even like I went to see Tenant at, um, at the BFI IMAX is my favorite cinemas. Every oh, time the one, the one, four, three aspect ratio, the, yeah, yeah. oh my God. And it was like the first film I saw, like, cause COVID had happened. And mm. I just remember coming out of that just being like, I've just had a massive grin on my face. Like people yeah. were a bit sniffy about Tenant, but like, fuck them. My I license really enjoyed... plate is Tenant on my car I really... because of that movie. <laughs> I really, I really enjoyed that movie. And there's a bit with the, 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 like the bit with the truck chase and there's all this side chaining going on. So side chaining is a kind of used in house music a lot, which is where you um, take the bass drum, dum, 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 dum. And you use that to um, control the compression so as we get house tracks, that's side chaining. Hasn't really been done in orchestral film music very much. I tried to do it once. It didn't work very well. Um, but Ludwig did it really well in tenor. Yeah. So I was pissed. I was like, man, <laughs> he's done something really cool. So I actually, I actually was like texting him. I was being like, oh man. And he hadn't seen it in the cinema because everything in America was like on like super lockdown. Yeah. So he was quizzing me for ages about how it sounded. Um, <laughs> oh it sounded my God. Good, I I'm looking forward to that. I'm trying to think what other scores I'm looking looking forward. I mean, I'm a sort of soundtrack nerd as well, so I just like you well, know. Zimmer's doing Dune with with Denis. Oh, Dune! I mean, that's going to be yeah. A Dune, I'm, I'm less excited about. I'm like, <laughs> oh, oh, dude, I. I I'm telling you right now, because I think the Oppenheimer trailer even has some of Ludwig's new music in it. And it's like, I've watched it like six times. I can't oh, no, I'm, freaking. I'm kind of avoiding. I try and avoid the trailer sometimes. Yeah. Because I don't want the same thing. I don't want to. Like, I remember like the third Batman and there's a trailer and you see the whole football pitch. And I was like, disintegrate. I was like, that's uh, for the surprise. And again, yeah. as we go back to earlier, the surprise, that first impact, that's, that is the key to like really powerful um you know emotions and memories so the more you can create a surprise yep. so don't anyone go watch all the spider-verse 
things are everywhere. No kidding. There's some things in the trailers that we don't want people to see. So yeah. um, avoid some yeah. of the more recent trailers and just go see Across the Spider-Verse immediately. Yeah. Uh, Daniel, yeah. thank you so thank much you, for coming man. on the show, man. This was fantastic. We are enormous fans. And uh, we've been really looking forward to getting you on the show at some point. Yeah. So thank congratulations you for your passion, on this film. too. You're so like just hearing you break down your process like. I was already a fan, but now I'm just like, now I can't wait to go back and rewatch the movie again. Okay. Like, listen to the to album. You. Listen to the album. The album, I, I've just been finishing the edits on the album. And the album is probably like the truest representation of how I want the film to sound. Because, cool. you know, this film, we kept changing it. It's like, I don't know. I don't know how much of, like, things, things are all going to have got tweaked in the final mix. So listen to the album. Do you and have any idea like, when we can hear it? Do you know when it's going to? Yep. It comes out on June 2nd on oh, Sony, Sony Music. You're doing a vinyl? Please don't know you're doing a vinyl. There will be a vinyl at some point. Like uh, a Mondo or 2nd. something. Hell yes. All right, cool. Well, Excellent. Th- yeah. Thank you so much. This has really been an honor, and I know our listeners are going to love this. Thank you for taking the time. We know you have been working your ass off on this, but thank you for making music that has been a part of cinema for, uh, for years now. It's, it's really been impactful. Yeah, that's and quite weird. But yeah, it's yeah. almost been a decade, I think. Yeah, it's been yeah, more yeah. than a decade. <laughs> Crazy shit. Yeah. Crazy. All right, thank you very much. Thanks, thank Daniel. you, Daniel. All right, Take let care. me speak to you. We definitely want to thank Sony for getting us on the line with Daniel Pemberton. And uh, as you guys now know from listening to him, the man is a a genius. It's so interesting to get a chance to sit down with somebody that creative. Um, And it was really funny. We were texting each other that, you know, right after that first answer, first two answers that he was given where he's, you know, digging into his process that I kind of realized like, oh, we have a we have an actual genius on our hands. And it's no surprise when you listen to the work that he has done. Uh, Hopefully we'll get him back on the show for future projects uh, because the stuff that he does is truly incredible. And um, obviously we want to continue to get composers on the show. Uh, We have a great time speaking with them. I think you guys enjoy listening to more about their process. So we'll continue to sort of effort those interviews and bring them here to the Real Blend podcast. We'll be back on Friday with a full episode. Like I mentioned, it's going to be the three directors from Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. And if you haven't yet heard uh, last week's episode, it's Phil Lord and Chris Miller talking at length about Across the Spider-Verse. And we're going to have plenty of other incredible interviews all summer long. So hit subscribe, turn on your notifications and keep it right here on Ribland. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.